There's times I was sitting in my bedroom and two narcs walked into my bedroom. My mom knew the chief of police and I think um, she was just desperate. And um, the narcs knew me anyway and they just walked into my bedroom. Two of them were like, if we see you driving around with anybody, you're stopped. Give me what you have right now. Um, kind of made it like they were going to guide me. It was a weird situation. And there was other times they wanted me to do controlled buys. On today's episode, we are joined by Olivia Rich from New Jersey. She will courageously open up about her personal journey battling addiction, recounting the challenging lows she encountered, including some captivating and enlightening anecdotes. Olivia will also inspire us with her triumphant story of overcoming adversity, transforming her life, and carving out a brighter future. If you enjoy the Locked In podcast, remember to leave us a review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to the Ian Bick YouTube channel and share your favorite episode of Locked In on social media. Remember, guys, we're pumping out three episodes a week, and I'm so excited to take this journey with you. Now sit back, relax, and get ready to lock in with Olivia Rich. Olivia, welcome to Locked In. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. You came to us from New Jersey? Yes. Cool. How, How long was the ride from Jersey? Not even two hours. Not bad at all. Yeah, we get a lot of people that reach out to us from, like, the New Jersey area. Yeah. Because uh, we're so close. We used to be in Hyde Park, New York, and uh, now we moved out here, and Danbury, Richfield is kind of uh, not far. It's, like, centralized. Yeah. No, it's not bad at all. So it's pretty close. And you were just telling me that you uh, stumbled across us through, uh, like, a TikTok or a— Yeah, I had listened to one of your episodes about a school shooter, and I didn't even realize it was you— until I saw your TikTok, I think, with him. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm always fascinated by that kind of stuff, interviewing people. Was that the one that I posted like a couple months ago? Yeah, it was old. Yeah, I had uh, reposted like a bunch of clips yeah. and the production quality wasn't that good and it wasn't this setting. Um, we just moved into this in like September and we got like the new chairs, even like this backdrop's new. You're like the second episode really? we, we recorded with No, it's with so this. cool out there. You, you're doing good. Thank you. Yeah, and we got, like, the screen. I just put this together yesterday, like, the screen in here. Uh, we're trying to, like, make it all professional It's so and official. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not like some me and my uh, parents' basement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'll have people like, are we going to, like, your parents' house or something? People yeah. will come and think this is, like, a basement because they see, like, the staircase yeah, and yeah, whatnot, yeah. but it's literally— No, it's a- <laughs> official. you got a real studio up in here. <laughs> yeah, so you have an interesting story. Um, you're not like some of our guests that have been to prison. Right. I know you were hoping that um, none of our viewers <laughs> come after you for that, but we do— Tiny have- jail bid. Yeah. Not that exciting. <laughs> hey, I mean, it's something, you know? you got yeah. the experience, but yeah. we do have a lot of people that have battled through um, addiction and have overcome it and come on to share their story. And that's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. appreciate the platform. I think it's something that needs to be talked about. Absolutely. I think it's incredibly prevalent and it's something very important and people need to see the other side of addiction, something I'm passionate about. Um, I think society's real quick to look at an addict and judge and be biased. Um, and then when you see somebody that's been through it and now they're like a productive member of society, I think it could help change people's minds when they see somebody you know, in the grips of it. Yeah, people are very quick to write someone off because of a felony or because they had drug history. And, and like, that's why when you put, like, the check bar- boxes on, like, an application or something mm-hmm. and people get turned off by that, which is why we need to completely get rid of that to begin with. I agree. Um, some of the best people I've ever met have been um, drug addicts. 
Yeah. I My whole circle is like people that have battled addiction and went yeah. to prison. Um, yeah. But they're like some of the most hardworking, put together people I've ever met. Like if I met you on the street, I would never be able to tell that you were um, you were a drug user before. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's take it from the top of your story. Uh, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was like childhood like for you? I grew up in central New Jersey, um, suburb, middle class, lower middle class family. Um, my childhood was regular in the beginning. I have a mom and a dad. My dad was a garbage man. My mom did retail. So my dad was home most of the time. He was like our guy, the fun dad, did all these things with us. I played sports. I was good at softball. Um, I had a very regular childhood for a small period of time. Um, my parents got divorced when I was eight, and I don't think that's a cop-out or an excuse for anything because it's not something crazy. I don't have, like, this crazy traumatic event, but it did begin to unravel the truth behind why they got divorced. Um, my dad is one of nine. Addiction is rampant in my family. Um, one grandparent on each side of the family died from alcoholism. My dad's one of nine, and several of them are addicts. And I didn't really realize what was going on. I had, like, the sit-down of, it's not your fault, but we're getting divorced. And then from there, it all started to come together, like, why? And when it really started to affect me and my brother. What parent were you closer to? I was definitely closer to my dad, full-blown daddy's girl. Um, he was an amazing dad. And I think that's what makes it so much more, what made it so much more difficult when everything started to come apart. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it now and knowing like how other people's childhoods come from, even like listening to the show, you know, like a divorce is very traumatic, especially at that age. Right. It definitely is. I just don't want to be the person that's like, my parents got divorced. So I did <laughs> drugs because that, you know, there's no excuse for anything. Um, but it did start to change my life for sure. So you would say that's like a stepping stone to the path that you would later go down. Right. And maybe if it was divorced just because they didn't like each other anymore and not because if my mom didn't divorce him, we would lose the house because he was in debt to banks, bookies, you know, full blown gambling addiction. He disappeared for a while. I remember we would talk to him on the phone and it later was because he was in rehabs. Um, he stopped being welcome in my house because when he did come in my house, he would just search through my mom's things and be like, this is where her child support money's going. And it was just very toxic. And um, the lying on his end got worse. I watched my little brother sit there, like, waiting for him to get picked up because my dad was supposed to come and, like, he would never come. Like, excuses. Um, I stopped wanting to be around him. So I went from, like, one extreme to the other, full-blown daddy's girl, to, like, I want nothing to do with him because he had, like, the divorced dad apartment, like, just a couch, like, kind of apartment. And I had, like, a home and a house. And, like, I felt very out of place when I was in these spaces. And I started to notice the behaviors and like what he was doing. And it just all changed from there. How would you have compared yourself to like your friend group? Or if your friends were here right now, how, what would they say about you? How would they describe you? I think they would say I was, I mean, I had a good friend group. I think we all had our own situations. A couple of them had divorced parents, but I think they would agree that my dad was definitely a character and they began to see like the issues that went on. Um, so I don't think they would say anything bad. I hope not. Um, I was pretty regular for a while until I wasn't. And then I was ostracized, which I understand why. Um, so, yeah. 
Did you ever wish that you had maybe more of a normal family when your your parents were going through that divorce? Till this day, I wish I had more of a normal family. But, you know, I have to kind of look at it now or I choose to look at it now. I was like, thank God for what happened to me and how it went down because I wouldn't be where I'm at today. So I am able to have that perspective. So they get divorced. How did things start to unravel next? I just knew the dysfunction. My dad was just out of out of the picture. Um, my choice. I didn't want to be around him. I remember walking home from school with my friends, and he rolls up in like a, an Oldsmobile that's like falling apart. And he's like, "Hi, Liv," and I just was like, "Hi," like go away, you know. And my friends will tell you now, like they said, "Who is that?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, just some guy." Like I just had to distance myself from that. So I tried to keep up with as normal as I could, and. Um, I never really understood how directly affected I was by it until I got older because I used to say, like, I don't care about my dad. It doesn't bother me. And I really thought that, you know, um, until my own addiction took off. So you really went from someone that was like a full-blown daddy's girl to you wanted nothing to do with him in a a short span of time. Yeah, I wasn't dumb. I saw right through it. Even at that age? Yeah. Wow. How was your brother in this situation towards him? He definitely handled it differently. My brother's not an addict. He didn't even drink till he was 21, but he um, he was definitely upset and affected by it. He won't talk to him to this day. Um, like my dad was the type of guy that would like bring us to liquor stores. Liquor stores knew me. Um, would buy massive amounts of lottery tickets and have us sitting there and be like, "I'm gonna when I hit this, you're gonna get you're gonna get a brand new car and just like all these empty promises constantly and um, very irrational." And you, you think you knew what exactly was going on even at that age? I definitely started to because I would ask questions and I and I could also see it. And I also knew the lies because I was lied to always. So I definitely grew a huge distrust in other people. And it, it caused me to be hyper-independent and I'm still like that. Like, I'll figure it out. I'll take care of it. Rely on nobody because, you know, I learned that that wasn't going to happen. My mom did the best she could with what she had. Um, like I said, she worked a re- retail job. What, what could she? She did the best with, you know, like that she could. But she dealt with her own mental illness, and you know, it was just hard for her to deal with as well. Would you ever ask like your mom questions about your dad? Oh, absolutely, yeah. She always um, tried to guard us from it as much as she could. She never bad mouthed him. She didn't try to pit us against him at all. But I mean. A spade, call a spade a spade. It was so obvious that, like, he was the brunt of the issue. Do you think if you weren't allowed to see him or allowed to be around him, it would have turned out differently at all? I probably just would have been resentful and wondered why. Um, But I'm glad that I was able to make that decision on my own and no one forced me to, like, spend weekends with him. He didn't push it either because I know sometimes court could do that. Like, you have to go with your other parent. And, like, luckily I wasn't in that position. Yeah. Did you end up going to college? Eventually. Eventually. I'm in college again. (laughs) Okay. We'll get there. (laughs) So um, you didn't go to college right away. Did you finish high school at that time? Oh, I was in rehabs. Really? Yeah. My, I was in rehab for my high school graduation. Uh, My first detox, I was 16. I was in detox five times when I was 16. Adolescent detoxes. Which substance were you using at that point? At that point it was blues, oxys. When was the first time you used oxy? So starting from the first time I drank at 14, I knew there was something different about me and my friends because I was like, 
it'd be like Sunday night. I'd be like, where are we going to get alcohol for Friday? And they'd be like, we don't have to drink every weekend. And I was like, yeah, you're right. But inside I was like, no, we absolutely have to. What's the alternative? Like I loved it. Like getting drunk or high or anything, my social anxiety was gone. My feelings of being different were gone. Um, the immediate use of a substance, alcohol. I always say if heroin didn't exist, I'd be an alcoholic. I think heroin just sped up the process because my behavior from putting a substance in my body was absolutely different than other people's when it first started. And, um, you know, drinking a lot at a young age put me in like the party crew so we were all getting drunk. And then with the party crew came the people on the outskirts that would attempt other drugs. And I was always the first to volunteer. Um, I was down for anything. So when blues came on the scene, I remember my friend had gotten them and we split it. And it was like a Friday night football game activity. So Friday night football game blues turned into Friday, Saturday. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. to so all of a sudden, seven days a week. Now I'm, um, I'm in high school with a full-blown opiate addiction second I put it in my body I swear like it was like heaven opened up I was like this is it this is the answer I'm not depressed I'm not anxious I'm not worried about anything anything could happen I'd be fine like that's the way it felt and I really thought it was a solution and it was until it ended up being the problem so do you think pain and like trauma is definitely a it goes hand in hand with addiction like if you didn't have that pain and trauma you never might have gotten even addicted to begin with I think there is a genetic component. I think the way I reacted to a substance, like I said, was different. And I don't know if that's because of what I was feeling inside that it allowed me to feel free. So I don't I don't know. I think there's definitely a genetic component and I think there's definitely a um, trauma aspect as well. Now, what about the, the the financial aspect of this? Where, where are oh, kids God. getting the money for this? Because um, when I was in high school, I, I don't think we were we were doing oxy or or at least the people that were around me, and that's expensive, right? Twenty five a pill, and then when you're <laughs> you're doing five in a clip, it's a lot of money. Um, so I stole, you know, and I can say that today. I don't feel good about it. I stole gold from my family. I stole money. I had savings bonds. I had my own gold. I had my savings account. Um, I always worked. Um, if it wasn't tied down, it was good and pawned. I had nothing. Um, and then a big component of this is, so I had no relationship with my dad for like eight, let's say from eight to 10 to like 16. So I was in and out of detoxes. Um, Fun fact, I was like a straight-A student. I had awesome grades. So I always confused everybody. I'm in honors classes, constantly suspended. It never made sense. You know what I mean? People are like, what is wrong with this girl? And so I was college-bound. I, like, had something going for me. I was always good at school. Um, so that started to trickle away. And then my dad got wind that I was into blues. And he texted me one day and asked if I can get blues for my uncle. And he would give me extra money. So I was like, absolutely. You know, like you said, it's expensive. It was always a daily grind. I don't know how the hell I always ended up with the money, but I did. So my dad had texted me that. So I did that. And we did that a few times. So eventually I was like, I know it's not for my uncle. It's for you. And then we linked up and became Bonnie and Clyde Daddy Daughter Edition. And um, now him and I were partners in crime throughout the opioid doctor shopping era because he was going to multiple doctors we would go to new york staten island pennsylvania new jersey 
picking up scripts. He knew how to pay cash here, use insurance here. This is when I'm good to get him here. Get the 15s, just take two. So it was a massive, like, undertaking. And I was his lovely assistant. And um, we would sell him to get money for the scripts. I would sell him to get dope. Because at this point, I was like, I don't even know. One day, I couldn't find blues. Someone was like, I have heroin. And then I used that until um, eventually somebody shot me up for the first time. And that was rest is history. But, yeah, that's what him and I did for a while. Did your mom have any idea that this was going on? No, if she did, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. She, no, no. Did, um, why do you think you didn't tell her? Because I wanted to keep using. If I told her, then it would stop. Do you think a part of you maybe wanted to get help, though, or you just like that feeling? Yeah, no, and I had her and I both convinced that if I just get detoxed, I'm good to go. Like, I just got to get off of it because I've done the detoxing with no medication, the cold turkey thing, and it was awful. Um, I detoxed so many times. So every time I thought, like, I just have to stop using this, but I was never ready to stop drinking, and every relapse occurred with drinking. I just wanted to go back to being a normal teen, and, like, that just wasn't possible. I'd get drunk, I'd get high, like, without fail. What about your teachers, your, your your friends that weren't using? No one noticed anything that was going on? They did. Yeah, for sure. I stopped being invited places. Um, I stopped being welcomed. I could could not sit in a full day of school. I was always getting suspended. It got to the point I walked into the principal's office on my phone just to get suspended. And he wouldn't suspend me because he knew what I was trying to do. My teachers, like I said, were confused because I was like, I went from one extreme to the other. I was like a good kid with great grades to all of a sudden I can't even sit through school. You know, you said something that's important. Isn't it crazy how we outcast people wh- yeah. when they're struggling instead of helping them? Like, imagine if someone tried to, to help you in that situation. Yeah, it fueled me being ostracized. Um, today, I can look at it as, like, you know, we were kids. People didn't—this was new territory. Um, if I wasn't in the midst of it, I probably would have acted the same towards somebody else, to be honest, because it was like I acted like a— like a junkie. I mean, who wants to be around that? There's only so much people can do. Um, I have my best friend of, you know, since middle school, she she never left my side. But at, at the same time, I tried to stay away from everybody because I didn't want people to know what was going on. Wow. So you, when, when was the first time you went to rehab? I was 16. I went to an adolescent detox. What was the final straw for you to get to rehab? Was it you or was it someone else that got you into it? Usually it's when um, it hit the fan. And um, I got in trouble. My mom caught me. I stole the wrong thing. Um, So usually that's how that happened. And what was, like, the first rehab experience like for you? Well, it was more—it was just a detox. So it was about 14 days max. And I always refused to go to rehab because I don't need it. I know what to do. That was my line. I've done this before. I I just got to get it out of my system. I know what to do. So that— my mom enabled me in that aspect for a while as far as not making me go to a treatment center. Um, she eventually stopped enabling me and, like, cut me off completely, thank God. But I don't think she didn't understand the depths of what I was in, and neither did I at that point. So, How much drugs do you think you were consuming on a, on a daily <laughs> basis? I think it varies. Um like, the walk us through a typical day uh, when you were at your, your peak. Like, you'd wake up, or are you getting high right away? Absolutely. I always had to have something for the next day. That was part of it. Um, it got to the point I'd do 10 bags in a shot. Thank God her- uh, fentanyl wasn't as prevalent. 
um, but I have overdosed several times. It needed to be Narcaned. And what year is this, to put it into perspective? I graduated in 2013, so let's say 2010 maybe is when it started. You graduated high school in 2013? Yeah. Oh, we're the same age. I graduated in 2013. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I barely graduated. But. Yeah, joined the club. <laughs> you watch my, my uh, transcript. It's hysterical. It goes from straight A's to like F's in gym. Oh, F's in gym. senior year, yeah. I, I failed gym, I just wouldn't go. Um. My story is difficult because it, there's so many, uh, so many things happened. Um, did you start getting arrested at all during this time, or was it just strictly uh, drug use? Yeah, I did get arrested at um, that age. Eighteen. Eighteen was the first time you got arrested. Yeah, of course. Um, the cops in my town. I got pulled over twice in a day. That was not weird. They searched me constantly. Um, I don't know why they were so so obsessed with me. No, I was, you know, they knew what I was doing, but it wasn't like I was a big fish. I wasn't like dealing bricks of heroin, but I was using. And they always tried to catch me with something. And my car was searched at high school. It wasn't a good look. Uh, my car was searched all the time. And then I tried to refuse. They'd be like, we'll bring the dogs. So I was just like, fine, whatever. And I always had it hidden on me and they never found it. So I was like scared to drive around town. Um, there was times I was sitting in my bedroom and two narcs walked into my bedroom. My mom knew the chief of police and I think, um, she was just desperate and, um, the narcs knew me anyway and they just walked into my bedroom. Two of them were like, we see you driving around with anybody, you're stopped. Give me what you have right now. Um, kind of made it like they were going to guide me. It was a weird situation, and there was other times they wanted me to do controlled buys. Um, they wanted you to set people up. Yeah. And I'm you. like, dude, I'm 100 pounds. I'm 18 years old. Like, you want to get me killed? Um, and, of course, I said I would do it. I never did it because it never even came down to it. Um, my first overdose, I OD'd, and my friend wouldn't tell the cops I was I was um, on drugs. So it took him a minute to Narcan me. I woke up at a hospital. And uh, that's the kind of relationships you have when you're using because the using partners, it's it's not mutually it's mutually beneficial to get drugs. But like nobody really cares about each other. So that's like what I was around all the time. Um, what got me out of state finally, because my I eventually needed to leave the state to get better. And um, was I went I forged a check from my mom and the same narc that walked into my bedroom found me forging a check and was like, you're either getting federal charges or you're going to, out of state. So I went out of state. But before that, the arrest, I was um, a waitress at Red Robin and the bartender did dope too. So her and I got high together and like that was it. I had um, I had like five bags on me and we got pulled over. Mine was hidden. They didn't find it on me. Ripped us out of the car. Twelve cop cars showed up. I counted. Do you see me? Do I need 12 police? Like cop, 12 cop cars. So dramatic. Um Pulled us both out of the car, searched me, didn't find it, searched the car, didn't find anything. I'm just talking to the cop, whatever. And I hear, hey, what's this? I turn around. The girl I was with had a giant Ziploc bag with hundreds of empties in it. So, First of all, who does that? So that got me to jail, um, or at least the police station where they, when I, when I was in the back of the cop car on my way to jail, I dug out the five bags and swallowed them, but now I had five empties, so they charged me with ten full bags because they were ripped in half. 
So and when you say empty, it's just like completely empty. Just the wax papers, yeah. But they charged me with uh, ten full bags, and then I had two syringes. And how long did you stay in jail for? Only two weeks. Um, I was eighteen. I was still in high school. So were you in like a county jail? Yeah. What was that like at eighteen years old? Yeah. So at the police station alone, um, before I got when, on my way to get transferred to county from the police station, I threw such a fit they had to bring me to the hospital, and I had the nurses and doctors around me with a syringe to knock me out because I was freaking out, thinking if I threw a fit, they would, you know turn around and I remember the cop going please don't shoot her with that we're gonna be here all night <laughs> so I was like all right I guess I'm not getting out of this and I chilled out and um so then I go to county and um you got the 23 hour lockdown for the first three days or whatever and uh my cellmate was over six foot 300 pounds schizophrenic who didn't stop talking literally I don't think she slept and woke me up to tell me she had a dream she got me pregnant I was a hundred pound little white girl in this county jail getting notes slipped under my door from other women hitting on me. Um, and I would, it wasn't like some tough girl shit. Like I was, I was scared. Um, I didn't, that, you know what I mean? Like I, I meshed with these people to get what I wanted, but when it came down to it, you know, I didn't belong there, but I did cause I was breaking the law. And, uh, I had a $10,000 bail with no 10% option in the beginning. So I was just sitting there waiting for them to drop it to municipal or whatever. And then they did, and I had the 10% option. And my mom said, I'll put the $1,000 up and get you out. You have to go to rehab. And I said no. I defiantly said no and chose to sit in jail for two weeks. Um, what about the guards? Were they trying to look after you at all, like an 18-year-old? No, I don't even remember. I remember sitting in the medical unit, though, getting checked out by the nurse, and one of the trustees saw me and sent a kite back with a, with a pregnant woman. So now I have a jail boyfriend. And that's just how my behavior and thinking was. You know, I actually, like, we wrote letters back and forth, like, sent them out of the jail to send them back in and hung out after. Yeah. Like, that's just how I was. Like, I was reckless. Um, I always picked the man that needed fixing um, forever. And then... Um, yeah, I sat there. They they put me in Gen Pop. I lasted for 12 hours because then I told my mom. Um, I don't think I meant it, but I, like, ripped my underwear and, like, tried to choke myself. Like, I was, like, just out of my mind. Like, I want to die. And um, told my mom I tried to kill myself, and she told the jail thinking they would help me. And I'm sure you're aware of what happens to people on suicide watch in jail. They give you the chicken suit. Uh, they give the you a chicken suit? Well, we call it the chicken suit. The see-through um, the smock, yellow PPE looking thing, which I actually wear at the hospital now, which is funny. Life comes full circle. And then they put you in the cell with just the metal bed, no mattress. And the CEOs gave me a couple rolls of toilet paper and said, here, wrap yourself in this. It's going to get cold. And I did because I was freezing. So it's just a bed. I'm basically naked and I'm cuddled by the door. Um, and I was there for about a day and then I shut up. They fed you at least, right? They fed me, but I was cold. I'm like, this is not, this just makes someone more suicidal. How is this a solution to any of this? Yeah. Um, and eventually I had enough and I agreed to go to rehab. Were you using it all inside the county jail at all? No. No, I wasn't that smart. I was just. Um, so that did that help you get clean those two weeks at all? Yeah, I was clean for those two weeks. Did that keep me clean? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, so it went on for more for years after that. Why do you think that was that that two weeks wasn't enough of nothing in your system? It was, 
Well, because I could be, I could have nothing in my system, but the uh, cravings to use, um, that's some, that's a beast. What about the physical uh, appearance effects of the drugs you were using? Was it noticeable? Oh, absolutely. I was skin and bones. Um, I looked awful. I'll have a picture off to show you after this. It's it's crazy. It's night and day, truly. Um, just dead inside, tracks in my arms. Um, I just could not stop. And I wouldn't listen to the people that told me how they stopped. Did you, Were you dating anyone during this time? Yeah. Yeah, I had. All kind of dirt bags. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, people I got high with. Wow. Um, That's a common thing, right, for people that use that that are using together they kind of end up dating each other and yeah whatnot. yeah it's really not about our relationships more about like we're going to work together to get what we need for sure so it's more physical than emotional because the physical part is getting using the drugs and, yeah it's the basis of everything at that point interesting um, you know at this point i go right from jail to home where in a couple hours i managed to get drugs and on my way to rehab, my mom, I had to go to a hospital because I basically overdosed. And um, I remember them doing the test to see what I took, and it wasn't even heroin. They, like, read off a list of drugs that I had shot, and I thought I did heroin. And literally, it didn't even come up my drug test. What came up? <clears throat> Man, I couldn't even tell you. I was out. But I definitely fentanyl, Xanax, and I don't remember the other stuff. But I was like, I did heroin. They're like, well, you know. So... I eventually got to the rehab after that in Pennsylvania. Rehab boyfriend yet again. Always filling a void. That's what it was always about. Like something was always missing. Like just being with myself on my on my own was absolute torture. And I know that sounds crazy. Um, people talk a lot about willpower when it comes to addiction. You'll never tell me I don't have willpower. Um, but you put a drug in my body and I, and I don't have control over that. It's a power greater than me. Like I know that sounds corny, but it's so true. Um I am capable of anything. I don't mean that in a cocky way, but I just mean like if I set my mind to something, I could do it. But um, drug addiction was a whole nother, whole nother beast for sure. How long were you at that rehab in Pennsylvania for? Um, I think it was more of a detox. It was like a couple days. And then the goal was that I went to somewhere in Connecticut. And then from there, I went to a halfway house in Florida where I didn't stay clean. I came back to Connecticut. I mean, thank God for insurance. Like, I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to get into these places by having insurance. Like, some people don't have that. Yeah, health insurance, does it cover all of the, all of these trips, everything? Yeah. Well, and that was um, under your there was mother? deductibles. She went into thousands of, dollars, thousands of dollars of debt paying deductibles. But otherwise, yeah, it would cover it. So I literally went from Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Florida, Connecticut, and then back to Florida. And that's where most of the the bad happened. I mean, minus in Connecticut. Again, I went to a halfway house in Torrington. Um, met some girls. Again, that drive that I wasn't doing. You can go to rehab all day. You can get detox all day. If you don't do something after that, forget it. I'm a strong believer in that. Um, rehab is such a tiny part of me finally getting clean, truly. Um, I'll have six years in May but I haven't been to rehab in nine years. So anyway, in that halfway house, I met these girls. We got high. Um, I wake up in Bridgeport, Connecticut Hospital. It's bright lights and my clothes getting cut off because I overdosed. 
um, the ER doctor came in to talk to me. He goes, you had about a minute. We found you outside in front of the emergency room. So my friends pushed me out of the car, kept my phone and wallet, and uh, dipped. They just dropped you at the hospital? Yeah. None of my stuff. When you overdose, do you remember the moments leading up to it at all? No. You just wake up and lights everything's out. a blur. Wow. It's lights out. And, um, yeah, he was like, yeah, had about a minute. And um, at that point, the only number I remembered by heart was my mom. Last person on earth I wanted to call, but the only person I could have called. So, again, here we go. Then I ended up in Florida. And um, I... Went to tr- the treatment center there three times. Um, in between this, you know, I got into a relationship again. Shocker. It was my routine. People said, stay out of relationships. Like, people would give me guidelines that, like, were just as bad or worse. Like, I went through the same thing. This is what I did. And I was like, stubborn, rebel without a cause. I'm going to do it my way. And every time it failed. Mm-hmm. Um, Florida was its own, you know, nightmare. I mean, I brought myself wherever I went. I was 18. Um, got into drinking, doing drugs, picked up coke out there, shooting coke, which sent me into oblivion. You want to talk, like, that just bad got 10 times worse. Um, so Was your mom out here still while you were in Florida, or did she move with you? No, no. She's, I was on my own. And what about was, your brother? He was home too. Did you guys have a relationship? No. No, I was cut off financially too. So, I mean, I appreciate that because in the midst of all of it, I had to get a job and get my car back. And like, I had to do everything on my own. And I, I appreciate that now, but I hated it at the time. Um, it taught me that I, you know, how to work for what I have. So I did that, but then I destroyed it all over again. Yeah, where do you, what did you do for work? You didn't really have much of a resume, right, other than Red Robin? <laughs> yeah. No, I always waitressed, and I always ma- I made good money doing it. And um, that comes with its own issues because the restaurant industry is is full of people that do drugs and drink. So I fell into that. You know, wherever I went, I was like the drug addict. Um, even if I wasn't actively using, if I was like in recovery at that point, I still felt separate from the group. And I think that kept me going for a long time, that feeling of isolation. And I had an option to, like, link up with people that were in recovery and doing the right thing. But, like, I I still didn't fully to the extent I needed to. Um, I met my daughter's father out there. I was 20 years old, um, just out of rehab again. Um, and then him and I were together for a little bit, relapsing in and out. I just went to new lengths out there. I knew that if I walked down the street in a bad neighborhood, people would give me drugs. And I know that sounds insane, but it worked like a charm every time. So one of the times I was in a halfway house and I drank, um, I was like, well, if I drank, I'm just going to get high. I'm going to do what I really want. So I walked down um, into a neighborhood in Delray, Florida. Two guys picked me up in an Escalade. They had the drugs I wanted because out there everybody did Dilaudin, which is an opiate. Um, they must have been dealers because they had a lot of them. They gave me a bunch and, um, you know, it was like a trade-off. Like, I'll give you what you want. You give me what I want because, like I said, it was like new lengths out there. Girls taught me other ways to 
survive, I guess, in rehab from stories. And um, I just remember waking up on someone's front lawn with my pants down and blood in my shorts, and I didn't know what happened from point A to point B. But I do know that if I didn't wake up, someone was going to find a dead girl on their lawn in the morning. And um, that was just an example of how bad it got. Uh-huh. To this day, I don't know what happened. Doesn't doesn't bother me. I really just don't. I don't know. But and you were only twenty. I, I might have been nineteen. But yeah, this is like the Florida era. So around that age, yeah. You lived like so many eras in, in I, your teen teenage years. Wow. Yeah, it was as chaotic as it sounds, and um, it's not lost on me that I'm very lucky to be here. Yeah, do you ever think about that aspect, like all the what you've been able to survive? Absolutely. And I think about the people that I know that didn't. Um, the visor of my car is a collection of um, prayer cards from dead friends. And um, that's the story of a lot of people that I know that are in recovery. Um, people die a lot. And um, I was lucky enough that I ordered, overdosed on four separate occasions and needed to be Narcaned several times back to life. And I am so lucky that I was never alone those times that it happened. There were times I picked up, used, shot up, and woke up hours later, and um, I might not have. You know what I mean? I do feel like I'm here for a reason, and I'm, like I said, it's not lost on me that I'm that I'm lucky. Did you have a lot of uh, friends or fellow users that passed that you personally knew? Absolutely. Uh, during like the the time that you were using? Oh, absolutely. And that yeah. didn't that didn't affect you at all mentally to the point where you're like, I want to go get clean. Um, it does, but the power to use is greater than anything else. I know it sounds crazy or the, it won't happen to me mindset. Um, it would scare, scare me to death when it would happen to me, but it was never enough. Um, no consequence was greater enough, great enough to stop me. Um, because it felt like I had no choice. Um, when I knew I was coming on the podcast, I... I've been like reminiscing this week. I like went to my mom's house. I still have my, all my paperwork from rehab, all these folders from 9 million different facilities. And I actually found a suicide note. Um, and it, I titled it if I'm ever gone. Cause I thought I might not make it out of one of these. I don't know if it was a suicide note or more of a, if the next OD I don't wake up from. And something I had said in it was essentially like, when I'm doing good, all I want is to fall apart. And when I'm falling apart, all I want to do is get back to being good. And I think that's like the best way to describe it. Um, when you're in the midst, when I was in the midst of it, all I wanted to do was get out of it. And when I was out of it, all I wanted to do was get back into it. It, it was the biggest mind game ever. Um, and the hardest thing to explain unless you know the feeling, but it's like I said, not for a lack of willpower. I think people think addicts want to do the things they're doing. And um, that's not to say there's no personal accountability involved because there is, we all have choices. But there's something to be said about what these drugs do to your mind and the pull they have. What do you think it does take to get someone that was in your position to get clean or to stop using or to save that person now that you know everything you know now? Right. Um, For me, my last time using hurt more than the other times even though I didn't like lose as much it wasn't as horrible as some of the times I think I was just so done so beaten and broken truly that 
I finally just said, I'm going to listen to the people and believe that I too can get and stay clean. And I suffered for months. I was in pain, emotional pain every day, but I was like, if they could do it, so can I. And I just had to like tell myself that over and over again until eventually, you know, it got better. Isn't it amazing how someone can want something, but they still like, for instance, you wanted to be clean, but you couldn't get clean. Like it's just, it's interesting yeah. how that works. Like how the mind works on that. Like we can want something, but we don't have the willpower to, to get that. Absolutely. Like I, I always knew I was better than what I was doing. Um, I always knew I was meant for, for more or capable of good things. But that rut I was in was indescribable. And, um, yeah, it was just such a crazy experience. And, you know, it's still a daily grind. It's not as hard, obviously. My brain, the first thing my brain does, First, my brain doesn't go to get high when I'm in emotional pain anymore. Like that's gone, but it used to, and it used to feel like I have no choice. Once my brain decided I was going to use, I I felt like I was a robot, and I absolutely had to do it or I was going to die. And I know that sounds insane, but that's like how how much of a pull there is. How long have you been clean for now? It will be six years in May. Congratulations! Thank you. So, do you feel like you have kind of this responsibility now to not only share your story, but to help others uh, because of what you've lived through, whereas others haven't. Like it feels kind of like that would be a little bit of a burden too, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. No, absolutely. Um, if it wasn't for women that specifically women that had years clean, um, that were close friends and still are to this day, um, holding me up, I wouldn't have made it out. So there is something to be said about, you know, giving back and being that for somebody else. Um, I think addicts have an empathy that a lot of people don't have because when you see the depths of hell, like you're able to see life differently than just like the normal person that didn't experience it. Um, I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I feel very disconnected from that part of my life. Um, so I feel like I can talk about it now without shame, like for years the first couple of years, I still felt like the, the outsider in the room, and I don't feel like that anymore. So, yeah, that was tough. Um, so I didn't get clean in Florida. I got pregnant in Florida. And I was clean when I got pregnant. I used one time early pregnancy um, and then stopped. But I got pregnant thinking, if I have a baby, I will never use again. Like, that's the level of desperation. That was the level of twisted thinking. Um, but that's really what I thought. I was 20 years old, having a baby, having no business having a baby. Um, do I recommend that? Absolutely not. Do I think I would have died if I didn't have a baby? I do. Um, because now I'm not just responsible for myself. I'm responsible for somebody else. And that's not to say children keep you clean because I know plenty of people that lost their kids because they used with children. So I don't think I'm any better than them. Um, but my daughter's father did not stay clean. Uh, I had a one month old and I, you know, my mom's like, this is not a good idea. 
you know, please don't do this. And I was like, it's going to be fine. He wouldn't do that to me. We're both going to stay clean and have like a happy life. And moved in with his parents and things started happening during my pregnancy where I was like, I don't know, something's up. And then when my daughter was about a month old, I noticed the full-blown using and the chaos and um, I had to get out. And my mom went from you're never allowed home again to letting me home. And I shared a bedroom with my daughter for the first four years of her life. And I came home, went to college, got an associate's degree in the field I'm in now. Um, And in the midst of that, you know, I would get nine months clean, get high once, 11 months clean, get high once. Um, got into the toxic relationship <laughs> that ended in a restraining order when my daughter was three. You know what I mean? Like the chaos didn't end. Um, it just comes in new forms. Right. So it's like I never needed to be detoxed again because my relapses were so short. But the continuous recovery wasn't there for a while. Um, and one of those times, you know, I overdosed in a basement, my ex-boyfriend's basement, woke up again to police giving me CPR. How did I get here again? You know, I know better. How am I here again? My daughter's three um, and I wake up a mother of a three year old um, in the town I grew up in getting CPR by the police. Um, And then one of the cops I went to high school with leaked it to everybody that I overdosed. Like the the video or just the fact that that he got wind of it. And um, as a police officer, and he was in, like, my party crew drinking, and he decided to tell everybody that we used to be friends with what happened to me. So now it's all through town. So now I'm trying to get clean again, and I'm dealing with the shame of everybody knowing. And I just wanted to be like, I know you all think I'm a scumbag. So do I. We're on the same page. Like, just leave me alone. Um, So that was just, that was a hurdle that made it, like, a million times harder yet again. Um, again, got about 11 months clean, couldn't get a year for the life of me and used again. Um, and that was the last time I got high. It was a five day run. Um, I had my restraining order in the midst of that. My ex-boyfriend blackmailed me with a lewd video, um, that went all around my anonymous program. And now, um, I was absolutely embarrassed, never wanted to see these people again, but at the same time, this is where I get my recovery. So that made it incredibly hard. Um, Got high for five days, went into like a cocaine psychosis. I was hallucinating. I got an infection from using and I ended up in the hospital. And um, that was the last time I got high. Men that do that are such pieces of shit. Man, it was rough. That was like a reoccurring thing all throughout high school too. I mean, people still do that now. I could still at any given day think about it and a crawl out of my skin um it was awful and um you know I'm not a victim I was a volunteer stayed in the relationship everything that ever happened to me you know to an extent I did to myself so I do take accountability it's not my dad's fault what happened you know what I mean like I people you know played a part but I'm not gonna sit here and be like oh it's my ex-boyfriend's fault I got higher it's my dad's fault I got higher this didn't happen you know what I mean so I understand that do you think you were looking for your dad and a partner too? <laughs> time and time and time again. Because a lot of women go through that and feel that, and I think that's very relatable to people. Without fail, I could see my dad and every guy I've ever dated. How the, does someone break away from that? Or I, is that always going to be a thing? So I don't think I did that right. I think I just happened to find the right person. Okay. Um, and I went from 
you know, being a rehab for men. Literally, I called myself a rehab for men. Like, I wanted to fix them and mold them and make them better. And then um, when my husband came into my life, my husband now came into my life, he, it was just a different dynamic. There was no trust issues. There was no fighting. There was no, we just worked. So I think I got lucky. Yeah, when you, I feel like when you find that right person, it kind of like clicks and you know, and when until you find that right person, you're going to see all the wrong things in the fights and you're going to realize you're not really meant yeah. to be together. Yeah, I like, you know, time and time again, my life was learning the hard way and doing things the hard way and hurting myself over and over again, like touching the hot stove over and over again. Like, insanity never made sense. Like, people would always be like, just stop. Like, why are you—and it's like, it was never that simple. How long have you and your husband been married for? We've only been married um, a year. A year? In October. I saw all the pictures. It was really Thanks. cute. Yeah, I was smiling. That was nice. Yeah, we have a daughter together. We had before we got married. Oh, so you have two daughters. I now. do, yeah. So he has my first daughter, my stepdaughter, mm-hmm. or his stepdaughter, and um, we have a daughter together as well. That's and so nice. Yeah, so today is just um, a life that I didn't see coming, and it's so different. Um, And I said earlier, I really can say today I can look back on everything that happened, and I'm, like, grateful for it, and I know that sounds insane. And if you would have told me in the midst of the rehabs, you know, the arrest, the the ODs, the, the chaos that one day you would be grateful for this. I would have told you you were nuts. Um, there was something on social media and I wish I could find it, but some guy said, I'm grateful for heroin and people lost their minds. And I was like, I get it. Me too. I'm grateful for heroin. Yeah. I'm not grateful for the heroin that killed my friends or for the families it destroyed. That's not what I mean. I mean, for my, me and my life, like I'm thankful that I found that because like I said, I think it would have been alcohol and maybe that would have taken years for me to like fall as hard as I did. I think um, everything that happened, even the bad things, I can see how it led to today and I see how it had a purpose and it happened for a reason. I'm a big believer in that. Um, And if I could do it, anybody can because it was not looking good. Did your husband come from a background of addiction too? Yeah, he's in recovery too. Okay. He is about, he has five years. That's awesome. I've never seen him high. He's never seen me high. Um, We found each other by accident, but it was, and I got lucky because that could be dicey, you know, dating somebody in recovery, but I also can't see myself with somebody not in recovery, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you guys both understand each other too. You understand where you've come from. Right. Yeah. So there's, you know, and bless him for dealing with me because (laughs) I'm not perfect now, you know, because I'm clean. Um, I still have my days. Um, You know, I could say today, like the first couple years of my daughter's life, I was not mentally there. Like, I don't want to just talk about the the cool drama of addiction. Like I wasn't. I didn't get clean and just become like a good, you know, it took a lot of work. Um, I still have my days where I have to like reel myself in, you know, I'm not, I'm not cured. It's going to be a work in progress for the rest of my life, but I'm definitely way better off than I ever was. Are you worried about the genetic aspects of addiction? Like how you explained with your father and Mm -hmm. you, do you, are you worried about that passing on to your daughter? Yeah. Both of my daughters have uh, fathers that are addicts. So, 
you know, and there's mental health in my family, like raging. Um, so yeah, I absolutely think about that. How do you plan to be proactive on that? Like what, what can a parent do in your situation? When my daughter's a teenager, I will tell her everything. Um, I think being transparent is going to be super important, uh, especially nowadays with the way um, fentanyl is. You could you could pick up an Adderall on the street and drop dead. I think I need I'm going to be very transparent about the truth of it, you know, and what it means. And I that might not be enough, but I'll take it as it comes. And it's also just providing like a loving home and a and a two parent home and and structure and everything. Right. I mean, if you had that. You know, I'm sure a part of you thinks that it could have turned out differently. Not that you'd want it to because you have a, a great right. life now, but absolutely might have saved you a lot of heartache and pain and yeah. <laughs> medical bills. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot to be said about having, you know, two parents and trying, you know, to do my best. You know, I still work on myself. I'm in therapy. I still go to my recovery, like, groups. Like, I still do all that stuff and I think it makes me better in a lot of areas of my life like every year I think I'm you know getting closer to the best version of myself it's not like I just put the drugs down and I'm and I'm good it's never been like that you know it's been hard but um slowly but surely we're getting there are you uh like out there on like social media like like a tiktoker sharing your story of recovery at all I feel like you would do very well because you're Thank very you. you're very open about it. Um, you have the looks for it. Like I think you, you you could be a success if that's something that you ever thought about getting into. Thanks. Um, I'm definitely I definitely share with people when I get the opportunity. I haven't done it on social media. Um, I was weary of that, given I don't know. I just never did that. I felt I I just never did the social media aspect of it, but. Um, I've definitely had opportunities where I've been able to reveal my past to people um, and try to help and like give my experience because there's something to be said about somebody else that's been through it. Um, it does something for you that it, that nobody else can do. As far as like recovery, recovery stuff on social media, uh, recovery as a business, I don't love it. I don't. I've seen South Florida rehabs for money. Yeah, it's um, bad in Florida. Yeah. Like, people could own the rehab and have, like, what's your intention? You know, I've seen people with bad intentions. One of the guys that got me down to Florida acted like he was my savior and best friend. I never heard from him again, but he got a kickback from my insurance for getting me in. You know what I mean? I think lines get blurred. I think it's uh, ego disguises altruism. Like, I'm doing this just because I want to help versus, like, I'm getting a good amount of money for doing it. Um. Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it. I mean, you have that way where the people there, you have the recovery mentors and coaches and all that. Mm -hmm. And then you have like a, a channel like this where someone's able to share their story and that that helps promote recovery in, in its own sense. But it's like natural and organic right. because we focus on the success stories and you're more relatable because some of these coaches or whatnot don't have any experience with themselves with recovery. I think lived experience is huge in, in this world. Oh, 100%. I absolutely love what you're doing. I think stuff like this is so important. And that's really not what I mean by recovery as a business. More or less, like, some facilities could be shady. No, I you know, know you weren't shooting at me. <laughs> not <totally>. you. <laughs> um, I think giving people a platform to talk about it is super important. Yeah, um, it's, it's the people that don't normally get platforms. Because how many times can you turn on the news and you see someone 
that's a former addict talking. I mean, yeah, the celebrities you have, like the Jelly Roll um, speech the other day was oh, awesome. Was amazing. Yeah. yeah. But they're not giving that platform to your average person. Right. Which they should be. Right. But they're not, you of know. Of course. Um, so that's what, that's why this serves its purpose. Which Absolutely. Is great. Over a hundred thousand people the past couple of years have died from overdoses. It's a stadium full of people. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was all because ox- everything was unregulated. Like I said, with my dad back in the day, he was able to get stupid amounts of drugs. The street, the, it was flooded. And then when they pulled back, all these addicts addicted to blues, we can't get blues anymore. So everybody went to heroin. That was like the era. That's like exactly how it went down. Um, but well, it's okay because Purdue Pharmacy had to pay 30 cents in a suit, you know, a lawsuit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the world is just. What do you think the biggest thing you were afraid of sharing your story went before you started to share it to individuals about your journey? What were you most afraid of? Definitely judgment from others, being ostracized and um, career wise. I was nervous. I remember when I graduated school and got my certifications in my current field, I was super nervous of my coworkers finding out and not wanting me to work there anymore. And that was a lie because it never happened. Everybody saw saw me the way I am now. Um, so when I revealed my past, I was accepted, but I didn't know if that was going to happen. So, so I was definitely how'd, scared. How do you overcome that just by? Going out on a whim and doing it? Or? Right. Yeah, literally, slowly but surely. Like, I like to, people get to know me first, and then <laughs> I'll say it. And then, it, you know, it's kind of like, oh, like you said, you would never expect it. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you could go back to your 14-year-old self and, and have a conversation with her, maybe get her in a room alone and, and talk to her, what would you say to her? It's going to be okay. And I think about that with, like, High school, for example, when you think your life's over for like minor things. And I remember feeling like that, like it was the end of the world. Um, it's like you're so young and uh, it's not going to be like this forever. And it, it changes and it gets better. But I remember feeling like it was the end of the world, like when things would happen around that age, you know, and I wish everybody like the at that age could understand that like it's so temporary. Um, pain is always temporary. You know, you just got to get through it. I love that. Olivia, thank you for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you and speaking with you. And, you know, I I hope you get on TikTok or something and start sharing. Maybe this could be your start. You know, you use some of the clips for this. Um, But, you know, you're you're given a gift and and a power. And um, I think you can be a little bit different than what's out there now. Um, Something to think about, you know. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Of course. uh, Keep in touch and uh, safe travels back to uh, Jersey. Thank you so much.